Welcome back to Zero and Repeater Media, and welcome to a new series we're going to call Baroque Sunbursts, a new show about music, culture, and philosophy. So for our inaugural episode, we have myself, Matthew Horizon, of course, our resident messianic Marxist Labour Kyle, and we are joined amazingly by Ravenna Hunt Hendricks, the artist, philosopher, theologian, and musician most known for her similar work with the band Liturgy. Ravenna joins us to look back upon the opening salvo of her musical philosophy, 2009's Transcendental Black Metal, a vision of apocalyptic humanism. And we're going to be talking about the teeth-grinding, fist-clenching experience of musical intensity, the blast beat and its discontents, and how ideas spanning from Christology to Nietzsche and German idealism have inspired her work up until today. Liturgy's latest EP is As the Blood of God Burst the Veins of Time, and their next album, 93696, will be out late March 2023. And so by the time this comes out, they most all they most likely be starting the US tour, so go out and catch them if you're in the area. I mean, all to say, Ravenna, welcome to Baroque Sunbursts. Hi. Hey, I didn't know this series is called Baroque Sunburst. That's cool. Good one. It's a tribute to this really minimal Mark Fisher piece. We'll try and get it up somewhere so people can get it. But it's this amazing bit of like feudalism rave and, and insurgent kinds of, of joy. And well, speaking of sort of artistic turns and insurgent kinds of joy, I guess let's let's begin with talking about I guess the origins of focusing on this this early text of yours. And there was it's clear that it was meant to be a kind of a provocation to break out of this particular mode of playing black metal. This, you call it hyperborean, and this longest kind of, let's say, mayhem bursum axis. And one of the ways you've tried to problematize it is through these, the static nature of its aesthetic. Black metal is seen as fundamentally nihilistic, and its main rhythmic technique of conveying the intensity of its emotion is the blast beat. So I used to start off, what, what did you find to be so problematic about that way of conveying musical intensity or what the limits of it in that Hyperborean or Norwegian mode of, of practicing it? Well, yeah, I mean, there, there's the directly musical aspect of it. And then there's the sort of cultural aspect, And those are always kind of braided together in ways that are hard to untangle, especially in rock music. I think, I mean, part of it, was like it was never a rejection exactly of hyperborean black metal but like an intensification of it and so like i i was i grew up in like a punk community sort of art art punk and what attracted me to black metal when i encountered it was that it seemed to be a rejection in a way of like consumerist counterculture where you're sort of making gestures that have this like moral or political dimension but you're actually just consuming an identity like the black middle was somehow tuning out of the whole sort of they're tuning out of modernism as such or like 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 they're further away from ideology than a lot of um musical scenes that i sort of saw as kind of fooling themselves or something like that but that the thing with black metal is that it's reactionary and so much like i mean it's a little bit similar to maybe the the way that the losing guitar talk about what religion is or something that, that like there's this immediate kind of re-territorialization that happens with black metal where you're like all right i'm, I'm, I'm rejecting sort of modernist ni- neoliberal whatever modernist nihilism but then then we just go back and go back into like racism and tradition and family and or not the family really but like so like it so the, the idea was to kind of they, they may maybe like the first generation of black metal didn't quite have the courage to like pursue the essence of black metal as far as it wanted to carry itself and that they were kind of falling short of like transcendental black metal which would have this which would be a more direct experience of becoming and the, and the burst beat and the burst beat it partly performs that by executing phase transitions all the time where 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 you're sort of not in one state anyway. I mean, we can unpack the burst beat a little so the way i understood it and cars on the table listen i did write like an extended commentary on this piece like during the pandemic which i've ever did send to Ravetta, but um right which is this, how we just to, just to 
so the, the, the problem with the blast beat to some extent is it's unending repetition. It kind of becomes static in that way, it becomes a static kind of dulls itself. And it's inherently, it becomes more reactionary the more it tries to reach this height of musical experience because the closer it gets there, the further it gets away. And so the first beats, as I mean, we can hear this, uh, listeners, for anyone who listens to the music, really, is this, is it made predominantly about this idea of ascending and descending, these accelerations and decelerations, the idea that rather than sort of, as, as Kant says about Plato, just taking off your wings and flying purely out, you land back on the other side and you could affirm the very finitude of that experience rather than constantly like trying to shed the life of everything and trying to rid it all to reach pure intensity. Rather, you're affirming the finitude through these periodic dynamics of, of life. I mean, you once in the piece, it's, it's solar. It affirms the periodics of rhythm. Yeah, I sort of associate the blast beat with like Hegelian bad infinity or something. Exactly, yeah. Or... Because keep in mind that the blast, because there's also this, like I always, I think of the technique, but then I think of a sort of world historical destiny of, of music as it relates to world history as such. And so that, that metal is evolving and becoming more intense and faster. So it's accelerating. And so when, you know, the blast beats, people sometimes forget this, that like the, the reason there's a blast beat is because it's like a rock and roll beat that is really fast and, and and like it's sort of like thrash is kind of faster than like regular heavy metal and black metal is that and like but it's yeah it's so fast that it sort of is no longer yeah it's no longer a rock beat anymore it's like a it's like a it's like a hum and that's fine but but it's it's like it's like a threshold that has to be crossed and you can't get faster than that basically and so and, it, and if you're stuck in it that's unhealthy whereas where the first beat passes between different states so so it's not just that it's it's accelerating and decelerating but in using the logic of like intensive quantity so so in which is it's kind of fluffy the way we actually do it but like the idea would be that there's like like th- there's actually a there are different beats that the first beat is comprised of and that you can think of it like one is like steam and one is like liquid and one is like solid and that it's sort of passing between because it's not just getting faster and slower what i find most interesting i it's really striking to listen to for for someone who may not be familiar with the differences in the rhythm patterns in liturgy versus in like traditional black metal and really on either side of the atlantic or whatever is literally the presence of an accelerando when you hear like god of love is probably my favorite example probably my favorite liturgy song as well but particularly for its representation of intensity intensity not as this the potential for subjective finitude that comes in line when everyone is in everyone is listening to this the exact same way would be the goal of something that's as fast as possible but as uniform as possible that it creates this sort of particularity of subjective experience rather than an affirmation of the refractory potential of subjective experience. Because what I find so interesting about the way that the burst beat works is that it works similar to the, a lot of modernist symphonic composition to where the repetition is just as much about getting to the downbeat as it is the way that you begin to hear not just like like all of the subtones within one particular tone, but the way that you are, where you're beginning in this rhythmic pattern, where it's ending, and then how you can even take it into further logical conclusions by, and how you have, and how I think some modernist composers did, by attaching these portions of intensity as joints on other sort of movements or something along that line, if you will, if that makes sense. Yeah, sure. I mean, I like that you bring up the accelerandos because, that, yeah, that's a big, I mean, the most obvious part of what the first beat is or whatever. And I like that you connect it to classical music too, because that's really, really important to me and has become more and more important for liturgy. Like, we also use a lot of fermatas, you know, uh, which is where you, you know, pause for a minute and then come to the downbeat. And like, in the structure of the compositions is rooted in sonata form. And, and I'm actually, I mean, I guess modernist classical music, I, I love, I, I 
think of liturgy as being more informed by post-romantic classical music because it's it's tonal in a similar way. And I actually think there's something, it's kind of the most like trad thing about me and the band or whatever, is that I think there's actually something kind of special about tonal classical system and like the, the way the keys, like the 12 equal tempered tones in the keys and modulating and that kind of thing. Like I kind of think that's like, the highest form of music and everything else is a bit decadent. And that, that's kind of a, an overstatement. But like, I think that if we have this, and politically, it's like we sort of have this problem with countercultural music, where it's like the libidinal nihilism of it kind of ends up just being captured. And so it's like, oh, let's do something more wild. And it's, it's going escape or whatever, but it's actually part of the logic of capital. And like, there's something about merging that with the formal features of trad classical music, the fermatas and the Achalarandos and the theme and like, theme and variation. There's a lot more theme and variation in liturgy than like any of metal. And uh, that's like healthy for the human spirit or something because it's not just trad. So it's not just for like philharmonic customers or something, but it, it's kind of, it's, it's really it's really part of the rock tradition for like kids to like or whatever, but it's also, it has, it has a more cerebral quality to it. It isn't just cerebral for its own sake, but it's kind of, it just sort of has the flavor of like the enlightenment or something. Cause, cause that tonal system is from the same era. There's, has a Kant and there are any revolutions in that kind of thing. I want to ask you, I actually want to ask you something about this enlightenment mode, because there's, Definitely seems to be a, a somewhat of a shift or a balancing that happens between, say, the, the early text of Transcendental Black Metal and this more recent text about the, the screaming song that you sent us in draft. Whereas this, this, this tension between, as you say, between Kant and Bataille, between the idea we have the freedom from this idea that you can take the bat, you can take the brakes off, you can accelerate, you can accelerate, you can fully deterritorialize out into the atmosphere. And then we've, we've all seen how that goes. You turn to Nick Land. So, you know, that doesn't work. And you have this <laughs> purely Kantian mode of the freedom too, which is this very dutiful, very sort of hyper rationalist mode, which doesn't want to fall back into a pure libidinality. And I just want to ask how you sort of try to bring those two together, not only in the mode of philosophical thought, but also through the mode of, of course, music through these areas of the, the bel canto and the rock music. How you bring forward with these two different styles, enlightenments, and increasingly accelerating postmodern into this idea of kind of a demon. I mean, not so much of a because you say that music is non-conceptual, but to accept a, a demonstration of these interweaving modes of, of free play. Yeah, or an execution of them, or something like like an instance. That that an effective instance or something. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I like in some ways that's what I was just talking about. Like, it's one thing I'll say is that I find that, that it's not very somehow like the way we're describing it, it sounds kind of obvious. Like, oh, wouldn't you want to have both a freedom from and freedom to? But like, that's not very common. Like, you, usually people kind of choose one silo or another they're they're rationalist or they're materialist or they're or they're, they're like they're, they're kind of all in with they, these two, the two poles are kind of there in all these different sort of modes and so it's a real just compositional challenge for me to bring them together in a way that's non-cringe also because that that like it's uh it's a very dangerous place to be because it is there's it, it's very easy for it to be uncool and and like somehow i think a more rationalist mode has going for it that it's kind of like arrogant and that makes it cool and but if you're combining it it's like oh high and low like vinsky techno or something like it doesn't work but like so a lot of and it's a fairly intuitive process but like it's like how how do i bring these things together and make it kind of seamless uh, and and I think that the idea is that, it, that you know the the metaphysics underlying it is trinitarian. So so so, so I'm not a materialist or an idealist um, or a dualist. Like I I believe that there are three persons of the, of the Trinity and that those 
can be described in a number of ways, which a lot of German idealism kind of you know, sees the same thing, but like in that, yeah. So, so to be kind of aligned with the absolute would sort of require an integrated synthesis of those things in the same kind of paradoxical way as like Christ also being both human and divine or something like that. Is there a, the, what, what about the connection to opera as a sort of a mode for this? I know that you've been sort of in, very intentional about how the creation origin of the alimonies is something that's explicitly opera is as a way of sort of the way that I, I mean, the way that I described it, it stood out to me as an, an attempt to describe some kind of convergent phenomena, i.e. a God with many faces and attributes of God of both and no gender. And I thought most interesting is a the 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 indescribable fourth, the inactual component of this. The I, I I've been describing it as X in my notes. Whereas opera has this ability to I think I know we just talked about, you know, the decadence of modernism, but there's this really interesting opera by Steve Reich that I like called The Cave, which is just this for people who aren't familiar with it. It's literally an opera describing about the, the cave of the patriarchs in Hebron in Palestine. And it's an attempt to use these almost mathematical descriptive dis artistic descriptive means to describe a, a convergent phenomena between the Abrahamic traditions. And I'm interested in how everything that you just talked about a minute ago relates to your application of specifically opera as a form, maybe particularly in Origin of the Alimonies, if any of that makes sense. Yeah, yeah I didn't know the cave was about that, actually. I've, I've never, I'm, I'm aware of that Steve Wright piece, but I've never just had time with it before. I think that the convergence of Abrahamic traditions is cool topic yeah i mean when i ref when i think of opera or when i consider my work to be opera there's a number of versions of opera that it's participating in so there is Aryan music drama and in in some in some ways for origin of the alimonies in particular the 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 structural feature of music drama or the structural the structure of music drama was kind of the structuring principle of that where where there's sort of story unfolding and the flow of the music is pretty linear and it's just sort of uh, it's yeah it's just sort of like musical analog of like intensities that they, like there aren't really songs or whatever and but then wagner saw his opera as you know, not just works of musical theater but has a, a sort of vision for humanity right so a, a, like a totalizing a, a, mo a modernist religion right so a, a religion authored through an artist so it's a, it's a total work of art in in some in some sense my my project as a whole in having musical domain a philosophical domain which Wagner didn't really have or not or no, not really an original one i, I don't know i don't know I think he, he, he probably thought that his philosophy was as original as most people think that mine is. But, but I think I'm a, a few more significant philosopher relative to my son than Wagner was. Cause, cause he was just like misreading Schopenhauer or whatever. But like, and then a dramatic component that, so yeah, anyway, there would be a, a sort of, to, a sort of total art that would, a vision of the future of humanity that is also kind of executing that through, through being a work. And then I'm also interested in avant-garde notions of opera found more in the art world, like the work of Joseph Boyer. Like the kind of things that maybe like Kanye does or whatever, like the sort of op opera as social sculpture, opera as kind of an intervention in the cultural field that in a sort of surprising or traumatizing way where it's a, it's a, it's a total work, not in, not in a particularly musical sense at all, even though you might be a musical artist. And I don't know. I've and I mean, I've kind of sought controversy a lot less in recent times. I I, I think uh, but that that used to be sort of more of a an ethics uh, for me. It was to sort of go go against the grain of what people would feel comfortable with.
But now, now that kind of seems tiresome. <laughs> There's only so many people in Burzum t-shirts you can rile up before the reactions get a bit boring. <laughs> I mean, I was only like, I mean, like, four, I mean, like, God, I must be like 40 when the, when Estefka came out. And I, re I remember just being surrounded on metal forums with people just screaming. I was like, this is, this is fucking sick. I mean, I get with people moaning it, but I remember I have a, at one point when I was doing some writing on this, I remember writing as like a, a little preface basically saying to black metal fans, like, no, don't get mad. You can read books. It's fine. We can do a bit of Nietzsche. Yeah. You guys love Nietzsche. I mean, just to uh, move to the side, through this idea of the, the gazant called the total work of arts. And you mentioned, mentioned this, a buzzword for me, which is the absolute earlier. And I'm, what, what would you say there's a sort of a relation of dramatic presentation or representation of an idea of the absolute through the kind of the, the total work of art you're trying to provide. And I guess of underlying this question, I guess is also another question, I guess, about the, the extent to which German idealism is influencing sort of what you're doing, because I, to me, I, I see a lot of Schelling in it. And I, think, I know you, I think I do know you do read Schelling occasionally. You do, I think you do read like the, I think I remember once you talked about the Veltalter at some point. And I remember reading this amazing quote from the Veltalter. It says, yeah, it says, who can unveil the secret birthplace of existence? Think, have you ever enjoyed those rare moments of such blissful and perfect fulfillment when the heart desires nothing, when you could wish these moments to remain eternally as they are and when they actually are like an eternity to you? When he's describing this, sort of grand cosmic drama. And of course, music for him isn't incredibly powerful, but he's doing it under this, this Trinitarian idea of three different potencies of God before the creation of the world. And I just wanted to ask, how, how do you see totality and absoluteness as exemplified through this, this Trinity of music, art, and, 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 well, I mean, I mean, let's so to step back. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah. Schelling is, a, I really like Schelling's Freiheit shift, especially. Um, yeah, and his his theology, like that, that's such a short book, but it's so dense. And I don't know how I know that specific one. My knowledge of his work is fairly spotty. There's a couple that I know really well, and that's what I know best. But I, I pretty much accept his theology wholesale. And oh wait, but okay, but to step back, also as as a philosopher, I am very attracted to explicit systematic philosophy, which is something that distinguishes German idealism from a lot of contemporary thought too, where, where you sort of actually sort of build conceptual, you try to account for everything with a concept, you know what I mean? And, and like there's, 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 there's not a lot left to the imagination. It's so much contemporary philosophy is either specialized if it's more analytic or it's, I, I think that's, that's sort of seen as a kind of naive thing to try, try to do or something like that. But, but so that that's Aristotle too, of kind of happening. Okay, here's my theology, here's my metaphysics, here's my physics, here's my ethics, here's my eschatology, and here's how they all fit. I think that that is that that is like philosophy's essence is to be like that kind of, and 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 I, I'm I'm hesitant to sort of try to turn philosophy into something else. And and one of the nice things about doing music and philosophy together is to kind of. Uh, let music make up for what philosophy lacks rather than try to make philosophy like more musical or more artistic or something. So, so that's like one advantage of my approach or whatever. And like in, ter in terms of how it's instantiating the absolutes, I mean, in some sense or another, like it kind of sounds half fisted to put it like this, like the absolute is comprised of like will, intellect, and imagination. And so I map those on to music philosophy and drama, but, but in their world historical co-evolution. So, 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 so like working with contemporary musical forms as they're sort of pushing towards the threshold of like originality and attempting to kind of, as a kind of an engineering project, so like be aware of sort of the current state of the art in these domains. And then also sort of construct something that doesn't exist comfortably in any one of them. It actually makes most sense on its own terms. That that that's that that's like that that's like the highest freedom that a sort of creator would be capable of in a time where, where where then you're not. And again, back back to capital. That then you're you're not sort of you're not you're not getting re-territorialized because you're you're not. And, and it's still like people. 
like liturgy doesn't really make sense to people for the most part. Like the, even, even though it's the not controversial now the way it was, it's still kind of like people, you sort of have to approach it from the inside to really see the full, uh, the full perspective on what it is. The ideas of the transcendent, the idea of mysticism, as well as systems, I think for a lot of people actually does feel counterintuitive, which if you're familiar with theology and the history of theology, you System, we're systematizing over here. Yeah, like, yeah. It's, it's, it's so funny. People like are like, oh, like religion is the opposite of reason. It's just like, no, religion is the birthplace of reason. Back then, like, yeah. <laughs> sorry, yeah. No, absolutely. Like, it's funny. You say exactly that, and then and the question. One of the questions that I had had is that throughout your work, you've developed you've developed various systems, and I said new situations for the use of religious language as a mean for encapsulating, a real, I should say, religious language alongside of music and the, the production of those art forms. And like we were talking about opera earlier being very important and key to it, but as a way for encapsulating perhaps some degree of the transcendence in subjective necessity as this participation in eternity, really as a participation in God and moving toward heaven beyond the wall is the language that I've heard you use before, which I think is very compelling. And it, it reminds me of the, like that, that movement itself actually reminds me of Schelling and this, uh, like this unfolding after church idea, which I also just kind of generally accept in my own personal research interests within itinerance in preaching and ascetism. And then I think what you're describing here is what it means to seek as a mystic, which I brought the, I brought one of quote from Gershom Sholem, where he says that a mystic is someone who is, where is it? Dang it. Who has been favored with an immediate and to them real experience of the divine of ultimate reality, or who at least strives to attain such experience may come through sudden illumination and may be the result of long and elaborate preparations and ways of participating. I, I'm, I'm just interested to hear you talk about maybe speaking to any of these ideas of how transcendence has kind of consistently played a role in liturgy's music and as well as if like, I, I know that you've talked about uh, use Kabbalah as a language to describe the transcendental recently. If you just want to speak to, to what it means to construct a system in religious language, and if that is in, how to encapsulate these sort of ideas of transcendence and subjectivity that you've done. Yeah. Yeah. Fun question. Yeah. I mean, the, there's a lot of interesting stuff in that question. Hope I can remember to get to it. That, that Shulman quote was cool. Yeah. When I used the term, the transcendental, <clears throat> I mean it in multiple ways. And I think originally, yeah, I mean, there's, there's the sort of, Post there's so the two main post-Kantian versions of the transcendental. One, the sort of the the faculties, basically, right? The transcendental unity of apperception as as just the, the frame of experience that can't be experienced within experience, but can be sort of speculated about as like a form of no psychology. And then there's the kind of materialist intensification of that, where the transcendental is the space where theories of the transcendental can show up or something so it's, it's sort of sort of un, un, under underlying underlying a particular instance of the transcendental there's sort of a, 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 a sort of historical field or something like that and the, the the version of the transcendental that i'm most interested now though in now in the most religious version of it is actually like very, very dogmatic, very like, 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 like dogmatic in the sense of like there being, say, in the Christian church dogmas that are simply true. And like, I think that there was a point in the history of philosophy. It was weird with Kant because like Kant's project was sort of to like shrink philosophy and like, but no one ever really reads them like that really. You know, it's sort of, they want to turn philosophy into everything. But like, I, I kind of think that. I mean, as as a as a Christian, not everyone has to be a Christian, but like as a Christian, like that there are statements in whatever, like the Nicene Creed, that in some sense are so they're they're neither artistic nor 
rational, but they're just true and they come from God. And that like the, that in some sense, like the noumenon is actually populated with like angels and things like that in like actually in a way that is much closer to what a medieval theologian would have thought. I like, I don't, I don't really see that as naivete to, to assume that to be true. And, and I think that prayer and meditation can be avenues for, for contacting. Though, I mean, admittedly, there's something postmodern about me saying that. Like, it's, it's like, I'm, I'm aware that, and I don't know, like, it, it's kind of not, it's kind of not serious. I mean, I, I mean, I can't be like fully crad in that way, but like, I think just as, as my relationship to philosophy and life and spirituality has developed, that's just sort of more and more the sense that I have. And, I haven't, like, there, there's this idea that there's something unsophisticated about taking that to be true, but I, I can't really tell what the basis is for that. So, so in some sense, the transcendental is just like God consciousness and in and, and communion with, uh, yeah, like Christ and angels and Mary. All things seen and unseen being this sort of a, a statement that carries weight beyond the simple utterance of the statement, but whatever exists beyond that particular utterance. I don't know. Yeah, and that there's like a battle between good and evil being carried out over the course of world history that's like undecided. That that they're like God, God wants the world to get better, and there are there are forces of evil that should be fought. And but 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 you know that has to be redefined with every generation, and so. Because the annoying thing about religion is that most forms of religion are evil, you know, in the present time. Like that's that's what it's most like. Evangelical fundamentalism is like I, I see it as a fake religion. It's not real. The, my resource for that is I, I love Bergson's two sources of morality and religion, where there's sort of the closed version and the open version. So, and I'm always kind of reconstructing themes from my favorite Christian and Islamic theologians to fit into Bergson's open version of religion. And 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 then and then that affirms civil rights and, and egalitarianism and things like that. Which, which is which is again not something that is that common. Like I think when when you see discourse on the internet, you know, like if anyone says like, oh I'm a Christian now or whatever, like that goes with this whole like that means that I've rejected civil rights politics and oh fuck wokeness and like but it's that's and and that's not even just fully fully naive religion that's sort of being some kind of culture industry aware person who then turns to religion but then still you choose this like reactionary stance in, in aligning with it but I, I think I think that true religion is inherently a mix between progressive and, and radical and that and that it's it's important to have trad elements to sort of strengthen the soul and like especially the attention span and that that goes back to classical music like i think that to have especially to have a vision to have an ethics for art and music where it's sort of challenging and kind of challenges your attention and there's a lot of information to absorb and like the more historically uh, aware you are, the more you'll understand it and appreciate it. Like ha- having that kind of like stance towards culture that like a professor would be proud of or whatever is a, that's a little bit reactionary. And so I, I like that, but just, just not hate. Well, it's a, when we think about time, I think about time and like the Marxists like Benjamin, as well as E.P. Thompson, their sort of like aggressive attack on this homogenized empty use of time in contemporary capitalism that's mostly associated with filtering all experiences through the effects of capitalist experiences. And basically you could, you could take it to the sort of mother brain, the subconscious, the the dream work of the subconscious of the mother brain of capitalism. And in there is this vacuum through which that like time no longer is of your own. And so dedicating yourself to a craft, like a string instrument, I play cello and it took you an hour a day, every day since I was a kid, I've done that in a long time because I don't play music professionally or anything, but like that all the way through college was 
an internalized sense of reclaiming something for art when I have to spend all the rest of my time like making lattes for people I hate or like cutting grass to make money so I can eat food and stuff. I can actually sit there and fall into something. It feels, I know it's not natural or whatever, but it feels like a, it feels like a reversion. Again, there's the dangerous language, but it's counter current. It's not reactionary in that. Like I, 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 I'm not trying to, you know, personify this, this imagined version of the past, but instead we're just not letting history be caught in this feedback loop anymore and letting it breathe into the present. And I think that that's cool. And I think like, I think that's why people should play music and why it's why I encourage people who I know who want to play music that absolutely you should. And absolutely you can learn how to do it. I just, I think that's really special. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, yeah, the, the immersion in crafts as like, yeah, as non, non alienated labor or whatever is, is something very, yeah. I mean, it's just very healthy. I don't know. I mean, I, I, mean, I, I was just at band practices that I was saying earlier and like, it's, yeah, I don't really like we have band practice once a week, even when we're maturing and like it, it really go, going through the process of playing that, the, playing the music. I don't know what I would do without it. It's not like, like I really, I really need, really need to do it. And it, and, and it does just kind of, it's like, I mean, humans, and this is something that like you can find in a lot of self-help books that they sort of just, just humans just kind of have this expressive need or whatever and and like it you, you can think you have so many so many problems and maybe you do but like that that yeah if, if you sort of find find a place for really sort of focusing effort in in the aesthetic realm that's it's a path of freedom and and that's obviously a super german idealism thing every every german idealist basically says that they they sort of talk in such a weird way that it's not always easy to get that that's sort of but they're basically talking about this like self-help book thing, but they're the aesthetic, you know, like Fichte or whatever, you know, the, the, like aesthetic unfolding or whatever is, is, is the absolute, is God. Did, uh, speaking of Fichte, have you ever, have you, have you ever encountered Fichte's son? No, who's Fichte's son? His name is Emmanuel Fichte. And, he seems really, I, I, I've just been reading a bit. So basically he, part of why I like him is that he's, he's a dogmatic theist. And so he was sort of, he sticked his son and he studied under Hegel and he was sort of immersed in this German idealism. world. And he, so he uses that language for his system, but, but, but he reacts against it. He's, he, he's a trap basically. And. And his, he, he's, he's very interested in improving the immortality of the individual soul, sort of using Hegel's language and then sort of critiquing it on that thesis. So it, it's this, I mean, it's not super well known at all, but it's pretty, it's, it's, I, I recommend it. I'm, I'm reading one of his books right now. It's good because I'm, I'm currently going for this post-Hegelian, I say post-Hegelian, it's like 10 years after he dies, of milieu of some of Schelling's later lectures, where he goes to this idea that actually Schelling, Hegel's just doing negative philosophy. He's just doing these rational limits of reason. But the, the conditions of possibility for the conditions of possibility, the dark grounds of under heaven of the transcendental, are these various potencies of personality, which are all potencies of God, but sort of this, this magic formula Deleuze and Guattari say, monism equals pluralism, where you can have this idea of a, a religio, a religion, a thing that binds at the same time as you no longer have you can have this as an open whole rather than rather, rather than this restrictive mode of it. Yeah, said so the open versus closed versions of religious morality or morality in general that we get in Bergson. And I guess do, do you think, do you see we where where isn't there is how does the notion of community intersect with this idea of the, the total work of art or even the performance? So if if I mean I've been to a literary show, Kyle will go to a literary show so show soon, but for the audience, I mean, is there a community, is there sort of a, a communal dissolving of these bound, you know, these bounds of individuality at the same time as there's a sort of re-communion there in, in the liturgy show? Is there an aspect of communion going on through this presentation of the, the total artwork? <laughs> because eventually, like, yeah, some like, you know, generation eventually sort of where you, 
sort of like in over intensify, over code you, just also, I don't, I just got to spill out eventually. <laughs> well, you, you tell me. You know, I think it is. I don't know. Is, is that, is that the intention of the, of the presentation? I think to, to have an, is there an aspect of communion to it? Because there's this third underlying potency between music and philosophy of the messianic. I was wondering, is there, is there, of like, is there a Eucharistic sense to the, the musical performance? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, I mean, that's why it's the name of the band. It's, 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 it's a church spirit. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an, an effort to bring heaven down to earth. And, and I think that the performances pull that off. I, I mean, like, I think, I mean, a lot of shows you go to, I, mean, I don't know, it's weird to like talk about your own performances, but I think a lot, a lot of shows you go to and it's like, oh, cool. There's like some guy playing the bass and like there's a singer and they're hot or whatever. And I mean, I think that's great. But like, I, I, I think my experience of a band is we bring in a lot of sincere, a, a, a pathos of sincerity and of intensity that it's really fun for me. It's even fun just to play it and practice, but it's really fun for me when, when people are there and they know the music and, and it's, yeah, it's some kind of like, like frenetic version of, of, a, of a worship service. Um, bring, bring heaven down to earth. That's in really important in the dynamic, uh, in an eschatological dynamic across all kinds of Christian traditions is that the, the the, the declarative social intervention that theological language, for example, can absolutely give. And that is all music has always been a music has been an avenue for it literally for thousands of years. And like when you think when you think about the idea of practicing, of, of holding things in like in the book of Acts, eventually holding things all in common with the idea in the Gospel of Luke, when Jesus is approached by his disciples to in, in anticipation of eminence and like when is the kingdom of god going to be here and he's just like you dumbass the kingdom of god is it's in your midst it's enthos in the midst of you and so it has this like and if, at the very least says that like the tools by which we might critique or complicate the sort of like isolating and individual individual negatively individualizing unto this sort of like we were talking about capitalism earlier and for example individual individualizing you into this perfectly realized particular consumer rather than the sort of ethos of lit liturgical formation but also of like the history of heavy aggravated guitar music and heavy music and stuff as this like participatory activity that we all i'm sure literally grew up on in a lot of ways yeah i mean i mean i i love to think of i love to imagine in in having a like an eschatological vision of imagining heaven as basically being yeah just like scaling up a really great like rock concert or something and like have ha, 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 like finding like cruel principles for society as a whole, it would make life like that all the time. Or or a really great classical music work where like every every moment counts. All I, I like to say, all suffering, no suffering goes unredeemed or whatever. And so and so that there are moments of discord, but that there are like opportunities for learning or whatever. And like I, I kind of think maybe that's why music exists is that it's sort of a clue into what heaven could be like once we sort of cross the technological singularity and or or just like a higher a higher and higher ratio of the infinite to the finite where where, where the infinite specifically means like moral conduct actually like like pity that is animated by infinite eternal values which means that it's not like satisfying base pleasures of either identity or whatever else but that it's like, like like when you're being motivated by the infinite what you're doing is expanding and you're sort of doing in in doing it you're changing something about the way that it's done or something like there's there's something inherently unfolding about the infinite um, you mentioned the singularity there actually i did have a question about this this technological aspect because i recently watched your talk with among other people a resident garastani and at one point you said that neo-rationalism exemplified in this book of uh, Negarastani's Intelligence and Spirit, which is this, you know, Hegelian attempt to AI, 
Kyle's got it. I've got it somewhere. It's too hard for me to read. I don't know Karnak very well. But <laughs> I mean, you, you, you said at one point that neo-rationalism, this Hegelians of German idealist take on artificial general intelligence should shed its secular pretensions. How? What, what, what do you mean by that? I mean, how does that sort of idea of technological singularity or evolving, progressing intelligence or intensifying intelligence build into this this heavenly mode of of of, of, of eschatology or this elegant aspect? Oh yeah, hey, elegant is it pronounced? Sorry. Yeah, I, yeah, I pronounce it different ways. Sometimes I say halogen. Also, yeah, I mean that's. I mean, I mean, Reza's book is funny this way because I feel like. There's a kind of very non-secular core that is kind of secret or something and that is sort of covered with all this technology and science stuff. But like, that, you know, I mean, that, I mean, that book is, it's a vision. First of all, it's an, eschatolo- an eschatological vision for human destiny, which people don't necessarily realize. But also like, it's once you are endorsing being animated by like the true and the good and the beautiful, you've you've sort of returned to the domain of pre-critical philosophy. You know, like 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 medieval philosophy. So that's another meaning of the transcendentals, right? In, in medieval philosophy, truth, goodness, beauty, and justice are forms that are sort of a higher sphere of forms than the regular forms. And they're 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 the divine ones. And they don't they don't show up as instances the way that dogs or whatever do but they sort of they both apply to the lower forms and then they also apply to things in the world without themselves being things and and you can i I think that something interesting in that book is kind of playing with the relationship between the the dogmatic transcendentals and science and sort of the the way they're like articulating sort of computer agency and norms in very specific ways is refining and developing our conception of what truth, goodness, beauty, and justice are. But but I think that like, I don't know, to, to me, that's a pre-critical project in a lot of ways, because I think that, I don't know, maybe critical or post-critical philosophy sort of d- doesn't accept that truth, goody, truth, goodness, beauty, and justice are metaphysical principles. I mean, it's weird. It's like it's, they kind of double back on each other because they're regulative in sort of this post-critical or Kantian mode. But what is the regulative? It's the cybernetic. So there's this dual paradigm of emergence happening here. It's it's where you could I mean go back to Schelling. He takes Kant and he says, okay, now we need to go to Plato's Timaeus because now we just need creation and we've got Kant. We just need creation and it's all sort of coming together. So I think I mean it's. I mean, I think Reza somewhat knows this. I mean, the last book he, he put out with with, with Bouquet was was Chronosis, which is where time just goes. I'm just going to exist now and create everything, and then we go. The time is this superhero of being, and it's. I mean, I I can't, I, I did put it on whilst listening to the Hark the first time. So okay, here's a system of transcendental Kabbalah. Here is time coming through like a superhero, and it begins with a bloody Shelling quote. That book. I mean, it does intersect quite a bit. So, I mean, it was great to hear about sort of how sort of your thought and the Negrostani's thought is interacting. Yeah, I mean, I, I, mean, I, lo- I love that book, Intelligence and Spirit. I, I think it's, I think it's the, the most interesting philosophical, or most valuable philosophical project around in recent times. I mean, because I, I, I was very accelerationism pilled for a while, and it was kind of really dis- starting to become disturbing to me and I, I sort of really needed a book like Intelligence and Spirit and was sort of waiting for it to come out as as like he was writing the essays leading up to it once well, it's going out on zero books this is this is accelerationism at its it's it's home it's cradle of civilization oh, like sorry Kyle no that's true technically that is true no I find like Reza the, that's, there's that aspect of Reza that I think is really interesting which we could I, I've I like to colloquially refer to it as just as his Neoplatonism, which is which I find I've always found really compelling and interesting. I I sometimes struggle to understand him, but I feel like I've understood him more by approaching him through one of his contemporaries who I've been really lucky enough to interview a couple of times. His name is Jason Babak Mohageg, and he wrote he wrote a few, but he he just put out another book for Zero and is going to put out a sequel to his book on the side. 
And in the interview that we got to do about on the side part two, what I found most compelling and what helped me kind of understand this sort of like the way that we're thinking through systems in this conversation. And I think that leads directly back toward Ravetta, the kind of systems that you've been building using religious and theological language is this idea of the, in On the Side Part 2, he goes into, he has this extended sort of like post note kind of thing where he goes into the supposed 99 names of God in the Islamic tradition. And then he goes on to, the, the whole sort of onus of his particular writing is about the, 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 the both the value in the sort of like the, the value in extremes of experience. He writes entire books about darkness and night and stuff like that. And Omnicide as a philosophy of doom, basically mania as like a, a in, in a, as the, the sort of essence of destruction and the compulsion toward that destruction. But what I found so remarkable about everything that he says and in general about what you've been putting out on your YouTube channel as well, which I think people should go and watch those essays if they're interested in the kinds of things that we've been talking about, is that there's an inherent like acknowledgement and gesture toward the esotericism that exists in the languages that we build. And that from the sort of very essence that the examples that I always use are Christian, but that's just from my upbringing and from my studies. But like even at its essence, the applications and uses of esotericism in Christianity have do, in my opinion, are ways of enunciating, compelling ways of enunciating how those religious languages and systems can actually be beneficial to us. And I just find it interesting that from Reza to, and Reza and Jason know each other and have collaborated frequently and stuff like that as and as someone who looks to their work and applies it in this almost kind of like kind of christian language or christian religious framework for my own work i don't know if that's something that speaks to what you've been doing recently especially on yeah i've, I've never read any of jason's work so i kind of keep meaning to but your description of it sounded cool and and yeah i mean the relationship between religion or esotericism in a kind of dynamic where it brings out what is useful for us in religion or in esotericism. Like I, yeah, I, and, and there's, so, I mean, yeah, I think it's important that to affirm that religion and esotericism are useful in some way. And then from there you have all these choices about how to knit them together and how to knit them together with Modernism too. And the reason that I choose a Christian approach, maybe reason is the wrong word, but like, is that, well, okay. So I'm very interested in the dialectical tension historically between Christianity and its, its heresies. So, so Christianity always evolved in relationship, especially to Gnosticism, forms of Gnosticism. And I read, it, maybe it's controversial to say, but I don't think it is at all, that like Hegel's system is like a Gnostic work of philosophy and, and Nick Land's system is a Gnostic work of philosophy in that usually Gnostic forms, they, they privilege knowledge of some kind over love and faith. And you sort of imagine that there's, that human history is human history is this process that's going to go the way it's going to go no matter what and the, the task of like gnostic philosophy is to sort of become become someone who knows and so then you see the way the world is actually unfolding and so then you can kind of affirm it and maybe help out rather than naively resisting it and being a bleeding heart or something like that and like that I think is, that produces kind of the coldness that I don't love in Land's version of accelerationism. And I think that Christianity has always identified that in earlier versions of Gnosticism and, and rejected it. Because Christianity privileges faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ over knowledge. So Gnostics see Christ as a bringer of knowledge. Christians see Christ as a divine sacrifice and you have faith in the sacrifice and then in having faith 
in the meaning of a sacrifice, you Christ enters your heart and you are more loving and you're actually able to respond to God's will more effectively. And like, so, and the, and that like the Gnostic version of that is divine in its own way, but it's, it's kind of, it's like a dark version of the divine, basically. And so, yeah, I, I, I kind of really remember a little bit, but like, you know, like basically that, that, that way of nodding together esotericism with religion is what is attractive uh, to me. And, and then, and then preserving instead of, instead of having a Nietzschean approach where you imagine that human values are just part of the process and that sort of the new eon will just have new values, the new beings will have that we don't even know anything about or whatever, that, that, that like, in some sense, the transcendentals, like things like love and goodness are in the most naive way that you would think of them, that like, that's what they are and that and they're very valuable in, in, in being that. And, and like that, that love, love is a real force that you shouldn't really translate into anything else, even though, even though there are versions of love in different domains that are maybe seem like unlikely, that just like being loving is the main one. I think you're totally right to say that this there's a Hegelian sort of Landian sort of thing around this prioritization of intelligence over everything else, this Gnosticization of it. Because ultimately for Hegel, every I mean Kajev points this out really well in his like lectures on Hegel, you know, that the idea that everything is only what it is, insofar as it is for is in within the mind's eye of the person who has absolute knowing. It's not the absolute. It's absolute knowing first and foremost. It's waking at all these deflationary aspects. Or how Hegel can say that in the aesthetics, the, the art is kind of, it's over, doesn't fully express the freedom in the same way that conveniently Hegel's philosophy does. Or Land's whole thing of basically affirming the worst thing that goes on at any one time because it's, it's, it's also a great play of natural selection. It's, he has a god, he calls it God or nature's god. It's like this weird, Whole, I mean, I'm like, I was about to quote him for a second there, but I don't think he needs any more attention. But I, I think this is a really good way of putting it, especially in terms of the idea of community and even this egalitarian sort of er eroding of the distinction between religion and, and civil rights that, I, that you talked about. Because moving to this Trinitarian model in which difference is preserved yet suspended because they're all three different kinds of the same potency put it in Chilinkian terms, there are three potencies and there's this indifference point, this divine absolute indifference point in which all differences are both suspended and preserved. It kind of brings the entire language into, into play. I mean, Schelling was a theosophist and he was, he says in the, in the, in the Veltos, like, yeah, philosophy's actually got it a lot easier than philosophy. It can know its object through a method, but this is the method I'm going to use. And I guess to, I know we've already passed, I guess, to ask another question about the the current epoch, I guess, is do you think that this the new there's like a contemporary rise or return to forms of religious ways of experiencing or even religious ways of knowing or non-typical epistemologies? Do you think that that's do you think there's that kind of turn happening right now? People are dissatisfied with the dominant enlightenment ways of of knowledge or knowing, and do you think there's going to be sort of a turn away from that and it's, I mean, there's clearly some dangers there. We can see, like, the whole integralist tradcath, a particular part of New York kind of line, let's say. <laughs> but do, we, do you think there's going to be a return to these kind of epistemologies, these kind of esotericisms, as postmodernism is kind of... Yeah. Postmodernism is a boogeyman, I shouldn't really be saying that. In terms of modernist epistemologies have kind of reached their limits. Yeah. I, I hate New York tradcaths so much. You know, I, I, I don't hate them. I, I, I love them. I, I want to keep loving them until they learn to love themselves. I, yeah, I mean, there's, I, I'm glad that the, in some ways, I'm glad that the kind of secular humanist hegemony is dissolving because I like religion so much. And I think that in some ways, it's just a positive, just egalitarian side effect of, it's a, the dissolution of the power of legacy media or whatever. And because people, most people are religious, you know, and there's, and, and there's no reason not to be, you know, no, no one ever, like New York Times never proved that like there's no God or something. And like, and so that's great. And, and I think that there is this kind of 
arrogance or something in, yeah, of thinking of religion as something in the past that is, I was going to, I was going to mention arrogance in response to a previous point you were making, but I forget if it's connected. Oh, in terms of the Gnosticism, that it's sort of a way of, it's like, oh, like, because it's not just, oh, I'm, we're sort of beyond God, then it's also like, oh, and then we're, and we're beyond yeah. love, too. Like, lo- love is that or it's your child or something. Mm. But yeah, I mean, but then there's, it's not that complicated. I just don't, then, then, then to identify, like, this civil rights movement as, like, then to kind of scapegoat, like, like it's like, people, like, love Gerard, Gerard or whatever, like, Fatcast, or like, oh, like, it's, Rene Girard is like, and like, they like, they like use wokeness as like a scapegoat or something. And it, it's, it's very hypocritical. I think that secular humanism is something to transcend and include um, rather, rather than, rather than to reject. And so it, it's just complicated because some, some of the things that are surfacing because of, it, of the dissolution of its power are evil and that others seem evil because they... They threaten a power structure that we take for granted. And it's kind of hard to know which is which. Can't, you know, imminence. Can't, can't know it all. A free New York trad calf. There is a liberation theologian waiting in the wings of an AK-47. Ready to go into the jungle and take down the catalyst system. Yeah. Or yeah. 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 Or- with an easy. <laughs> okay. I know we're uh, already a bit over the hour. Kyle, you would think, I don't, I don't want to keep you too long with <laughs> Yeah, do you have anything to say about liberation theology on this part, Kyle? So, or, I, I know that that's sort of a, I mean, not to. I mean, no, I like I, I think. Yeah. Liberation. The thing that I like the most about liberation theology is that well, th- like is historicizing it. And that it has this like it, it it was given as a rise. It it came from a necessity in this exact same thing. It's actually the descriptive power of history as always coming through in clutch. Historicizing the particular neoliberal turn at that time, and then also alongside of the progress of elements of Latin American and Central American liberation theology, and and that eventually literal guerrilla warfare in opposition to coups claimed in. At, and executed by the CIA and that kind of a thing is like there's this it's sort of like I, I think part I think maybe the difference of the problem now is that we have a re, we're not instead of de we're trying to both denaturalize contemporary capitalism and reintroduce these ideas of like no not everything is has and always shall be but are is things are in flux and because the way that the world is made actually this is what i think i think that something that sort of works in liberation theology as well as in the particular like wesleyan tradition like the evangelical kind of tradition that i was raised with is that eminence is descriptive of the world the potential for the world to be right in recognition of the the fact that the world is not right something is wrong and that there are like that the 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 drive within the self like the dive the collapsing within the self isn't doing any work toward elevating or changing that particular self it's the fa- it's it's the fact that we're placed within this tension in the self and the fact that that the world's fucked up the world is not right is like a, the start of a speech of one of my like it's a pretty normal speech from Eugene Debs' like early time with the rail workers. He was in Butte, Montana, I think. I brought it up on an episode of my show for Zero Books, specifically because to describe this idea that like I, I write about the utopia. I'm writing a book about the utopian using a lot of these sort of the language that we've been describing today, as well as Walter Benjamin and Ernst Bloch. And I I think it's all predicated on the sort of specific demands that we've made here. On the one hand, a recognition of the reemergence of these challenges to dominating social orders and the media apparatuses that constantly reinforce and duplicate them and allow them to change. And at the same time, the necessity toward giving rise to something new and placing 
placing those ambitions, the be the ambitions beyond the wall into the unfolding process of trying to bring heaven into earth. Basically, I think you're right in the way that you describe eschatological concerns and their relationship to the social. And that I think it's actually maybe more important than ever that we're reintroducing these particular ideas here and now. And that there's no other place to introduce them besides here and now in this time and place because it's where we are. So you see my blind dog running into stuff all behind me. My <laughs> poor guy. Uh, he's okay. Uh, he's actually yeah, blind? I, yeah, yeah, he's fully blind. Oh, wow. Cute. I'll find it. There he goes. He made it. But anyway, sorry. I got, I blacked out oh. for a second. Yeah. Good stuff. I like it. I mean, that was, yeah, I, I, I love it when Kyle gets you get unzipped like this. It's um, the other book. Yeah, he's writing a book for Zero Books, folks. It's called Revival The Return of Spirits. And it's going to be that for pages and pages. And it's going mean, we might have, yeah, we just need to look at, we need to look at Zero Revival series. Like just on like Thomas Munzer, Gerard Wynn Stanley. I'm just going to, I'm just going to round it off here. And I know we're reaching the, you've yeah, reached us. I've gone for a little over an hour. I will say, Ravenna, thank you so much for coming on to to Baroque Sunburst, the first episode. And I mean, literally, you'll be on tour by the time this comes out. We have, as the as Blood of God burst of veins of time out now. We have ninety three six nine six out at some points late March. So I can edit that in. And then, of course, the tour is starting in about a week. Go and see it. I mean, you will have a religious experience. You will. You, you, you don't even need to get very drunk. Like most most gigs, you've got to have a few drinks to sort of settle in. No, you don't. So it all wash over you. Yeah, like the, take the communion. It, it, it's best to be sober for it. Makes you know, make your sure your senses are acute as possible. Yeah, yeah. We're I don't yeah, my mistakes. We're going on tour through Canada to Chicago and back. It's just like a ten day tour. Yeah, amazing. Okay. Um, yeah, thanks so much for having me. That was a very enjoyable conversation. See, absolute, absolute privilege. Thank you. <laughs> We appreciate your support of the imprint and the channel. Subscribe to Zero Books today on Patreon. Your material support helps us to promote a variety of perspectives on the left. Also, discover the many titles, new and old, that Zero has curated. Navigate to any of the links in the show notes to extend your support.